Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from a special guest speaker. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for that Facebook stalking that you did this morning on my Facebook account. I appreciate that. Well, it is a pleasure to be here with you this morning. It's kind of hard to follow VBS, though. That's a hard act to follow, but someone did give me the note. I wrote, wore the right color tie, at least. And yeah, these are some great props here for my sermon for later. So. But I just want to bring you greetings from my wife and my family and to say thank you to you. We are missionaries, and we have been supported for the last 10 years by KPC. So I just want to say thank you. My wife grew up in this church. This is a place where her faith was formed, and we have been supported and loved by you for the last decade. So on behalf of her and our family, as missionaries, as your brothers and sisters in Christ, I just want to say thank you for the love that you've shown us for the last decade. Thank you very much. So as Steve said, we were serving as missionaries. We served with both uh, EPC World Outreach and United World Mission. And for 10 years, we've been serving in France. So we were the first in France. And as Steve said, uh, we went there to go actually to do church planting. So our desire when we left 10 years ago to go to France was to see God plant an indigenous French church that would be led by French leaders that would be healthy and on, on its way to multiplication. And within about eight years, through God's miraculous power, we were able to see that accomplished. So we thank God for the church that he helped us to plant called Église de l'Abri in France, and you were part of that too. It is in the hands of French leadership. It's healthy. It's actually planted a daughter church close into Paris, and they're looking at planting two other daughter churches within the next five years. So in France, that is a miraculous thing. To God be the glory. So about four years ago, United World Mission asked me to serve as the regional leader for Europe. And I began traveling around Europe and seeing what God was doing in different projects with different national leaders and with our missionaries. And I began to see a a disturbing trend, especially among the national leaders. I saw that almost to a person, they were spiritually dry. They were disconnected from their source, from the vine, from Christ. And I said, this shouldn't be. These leaders have no resource. They have very little, they have, don't have people who are pouring into them. So a colleague and I began praying and saying, Lord, what can we do to help serve these European national Christian leaders to help refresh and restore them? And the dream that God put on my heart and on my colleague's heart was to help form a center, a center for Christian leadership development in Europe that would help Christian leaders reconnect to God to their own hearts, and then to each other. So to make a really long story short, where we're going now from France is to Edinburgh, Scotland, where we're going to plant a center called East Mountain, which is going to be for the purpose of helping these European Christian leaders reconnect to the source, reconnect to each other, so that we could see movement happen for the gospel in Europe again. So that's just a little blurb about what we're doing, about the mission that you're supporting in us, Um, Feel free to pick up one of our prayer cards. There's a little table out there with a uh, European tablecloth out in the front. We'd love to have you sign up for our newsletter as well. If you don't like this prayer card, if it's not good enough for your refrigerator, it makes it a fantastic coaster. So pick one up for your summer drinks. We'd love to stay connected with you. Well, I'm going to be honest with you this morning. Steve mentioned this. We're waiting right now. 
We should be in Scotland. In fact, if we had had our way as a family, we'd be there right now. Our original plans were to land in Scotland in June, unpack all of our worldly goods, which are still in storage in France, and begin a new life in ministry in Scotland. But as you can see, we're not there. We're waiting. In fact, the, the visa situation is such right now in the UK that it just takes longer than we anticipated. So because of Brexit, because of the migrant crisis that's going on in Europe, people like us who are trying to get in as religious workers into the UK, it's not so easy. Not as easy as we anticipated. So we are stuck in a meantime, a time in between two things, an unanticipated prolongation of our transition and waiting. So some say that the best sermons that preachers preach come out of their own personal experience, what they're living right now. So what I'm preaching on today, mercy in the meantime, is where I am. It's where God has me. It's where God has my family. And perhaps it's where God has some of you at this moment. I truly believe that these meantime periods that God has... It's God's way. It's his modus operandi. It's the way that he works. It's how he does things to shape men and women so that they can become better leaders, so that they can become ready for the service that God has for them, so that they can better reflect the image of God's Son, Jesus, in their lives. And it's important for me to let you know at the very beginning that I believe that these mean times are from God. It's God who orchestrates them. It's not something that catches him by surprise. And the mean times in our life never mean abandonment. It's not some happenstance. The Lord purposes them for us, and he is present in them. And because he is present in these times in our lives, we can find mercy in the meantime. Today we're going to look at one of the great heroes of the faith. We're going to look at the life of Moses and a particular meantime period in his life. Now, when we think of Moses, we tend to think of him as a, either a baby floating down the Nile, or we think of him as the receiver of the Ten Commandments and the law, who leads God's people out of Egypt and then into 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. He's either the prince of Egypt, or he's holding out his staff to part the Red Sea. He's either Pharaoh's daughter, or he's turning the Nile to blood. But there is this long and, I find, very interesting period in his life when he was neither of these things. So we're going to read together this morning from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 25, and it's going to come up on the screen. And I'm reading from the NIV, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me, and let's read along together. Exodus 2, starting in verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me? as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. 
But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and to fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Reuel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zephorah to Moses in marriage. Zephorah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is the word of the Lord. So we find Moses here in the midst of his tale, and it's a sordid one. It begins with this inciting incident, one that drives him out of Egypt and into this particular meantime of his life. One day, Exodus 2 says, Moses, who is a man now, leaves his place of comfort. He leaves the palace of Egypt, and he goes down to see his own people. Now, remember, Moses wrote the book of Exodus, so it's Moses here who is explaining what he did. And what he's telling us is that at this point, he has a recognition that he is a Hebrew, that he's not an Egyptian. Already we see he has questions of his identity that are pushing him out of this first phase of his life. So he goes down and he, to see his people, and he sees a Hebrew slave being beaten by an Egyptian. And then what Moses does is he takes matters into his own hands. He kills the Egyptian and he hides his body in the sand. Not good. And then it gets worse. The next day he goes down and he tries to reconnect again with his people, the Hebrews. And he finds out that these Hebrews do not look at him as a Hebrew. And then he realizes that word of what he had done has gotten out among them. Really not good. And then Pharaoh hears about it, and Moses becomes a wanted man. He's marked for death. So he flees from Egypt into Midian. And Midian is this part of northwestern Arabia. It's it's a desert place, a desolate place. And Moses goes there and spends the next 40 years in self-imposed exile. This is Moses in the meantime in Midian. How's that for alliteration? (laughs) So after this setup of Moses and what he does and how he gets here, in nine short verses in chapter 2 of Exodus, verses 16 through 25, we get 40 years that roll out very quickly. 40 years of Moses' life. And in the first verses, beginning in verse 16, Moses tells us about this land of Midian and what he meets when he goes there. Here we see Moses, ever the hero, the rescuer, the protector. He goes and he sits down at a well. 
And these seven daughters of the priests of Midian are there to water their father's flocks. And they're harassed by these shepherds. So Moses moves in as the hero, and he saves them, and he waters the flocks. Now, to these daughters, Moses was obviously an Egyptian. I mean, he he looked Egyptian. They explained him as an Egyptian, described him as an Egyptian to their father. He probably dressed Egyptian. He might have even smelled Egyptian, whatever that means. But to these women, he was Egyptian. We see that Moses is still firmly in that beginning identity of who he was in Egypt. And then we see through the next several verses that these 40 years roll out very quickly. 40 years of meantime that pass before Moses has that fateful encounter with a bush that would not be consumed even though it burned. I'm going to read verses 21 through 25 again to you. Listen to the 40 years pass. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zephorah to Moses in marriage. Zephorah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry of help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked down on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is Moses' 40 years of meantime. Now Moses is not alone in the scriptures about having this kind of meantime, this period of, of life in the middle. In fact, if you look at the lives of the saints all throughout scripture, you see that almost all of them had something like this. Joseph is another good example. Joseph is the one who started this whole Egypt thing. 400 years prior to Moses, we see that Joseph is sold into slavery. Joseph becomes a slave in the house of Potiphar. And then he's thrown into prison. Think about that meantime and what he experienced there before he's exalted by God as a ruler of Egypt. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus himself spent 30 years in relative anonymity. And then he has this concentrated period of 40 days in the desert where he is tempted by the enemy before he enters into his public ministry. It's Jesus in the meantime. We also have the Apostle Paul, who spends three years in Arabia, of which we know very little, before he goes back into Jerusalem and begins his public ministry. The scriptures are full of meantimes. So, what can we learn from the life of Moses here? His meantime period. And then how can we apply it to our own lives and our own meantimes? I think we have to start by admitting that sometime mean times are mean times. They can seem mean and hard and harsh. A difficult period where sometimes God is absent or seemingly so. And sometimes our spiritual lives are as dry as the desert that Moses found himself in in Midian. There are times where we face loss and struggle. The loss of youth and innocence as we pass to adulthood and adult responsibilities. Or maybe an unwanted period of singleness that's just difficult. Or maybe the sandwich years that many people experience when they have aging parents and children who still need them 
They're mean times. They're difficult. The loss of a job or of a dream, a relationship that you thought was sure that fell through. Times when your visa doesn't come through when you hope it would, and you're forced to extend your period of transition, and you wait. Mean times can be mean, but we should never see them as an end. They're times in the middle, between two things. And they are an important way, one of the most important ways, that God shapes us. We can be prepared to receive the mercy of God that he has for us in these meantimes. So when you find yourself in a mean meantime, like I find myself in right now, to be quite honest, so I'm preaching to myself, I believe that the life of Moses here in Exodus chapter 2 reveals three very important ways on how to deal with it. And number one, probably the most important, is in the meantime, stay connected to the vine. Don't let go of Jesus in the meantime. This is the number one most important rule about thriving in desolate and desert places in the middle. Moses ran to Midian bearing this load of guilt and shame on his shoulders. He tried to do the right thing and he ended up killing a man in cold blood. He was rejected by the people that he so desperately wanted to identify with. His hieroglyphic image was plastered across Egypt from Luxor to Memphis. He was a wanted man. And all of his privilege, all of his learning, all of the years he had spent in Pharaoh's court were worth absolutely nothing in a land of shepherds and tents. And in this place, Moses could have fallen into despair and into ruin. And maybe he did despair. We don't know. What we do see from the scriptures, though, is that Moses immediately connects in this meantime in Midian to this mysterious priest and his family. And then he very quickly becomes a part of this family. Now, I find it significant that Moses introduces his father-in-law here for the very first time, and he uses the Hebrew name Royuel. Now, in chapter 3, just a little bit later, he calls him Jethro, which means his excellence. But here in chapter 2, in this meantime period, Moses introduces him as Royuel, which means the friend of God. So this is a little geek tidbit for you. Some of you who are J.R.R. Tolkien fans, you'll know, or maybe you don't know, and I'm going to tell you because I'm a geek myself, that one of those R's in J.R.R. Tolkien is Royuel. It was John uh, Ronald Royuel Tolkien, the friend of God. Geek tidbit for you. So Moses here connects immediately to a friend of God. Moses becomes part of the family of this friend of God. And Moses is challenged here to become himself a friend of God. Later in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11, the Bible tells us this. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And I believe that this ability to be the kind of person that God speaks to as a friend began for Moses in this period of meantime. Cling to God in the meantime. 
as if he is the only friend that you have. Stay connected to Jesus. Don't let go. And this is particularly important when we realize that our mean times can become places of great spiritual battle and struggle. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be alert and of sober mind, because your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The enemy of our souls loves to prowl around the desert and the places of meantime looking for easy prey. He wants to devour us, to tear us apart. He will lie to us. He will whisper in our ears, just as he did in Jesus' ear in the desert. And he will want to convince you that God is not good, that God will, is not good for his promises, and that what you're feeling in this meantime is how you will feel forever. That this is the way your life will end. Friends, we need to resist. Our French partners would always say to us, as we would have team meetings in times that were particularly hard, in times of spiritual battles, they would say, Les amis, résistez. Resist. We need to resist and to cling to Christ and to stay connected to Him at all costs. The second thing I think we can learn from this period to help us in our meantimes is don't stop working in the meantime. It's so tempting when we face these desert places to sit and to sulk and to soak. Sometimes we feel burnout. Sometimes we are burnout. But I believe there's a difference between learning how to find true rest and healing and restoration in burnout and giving in to the temptation to become a closed system. So what do I mean by this? I want to give an example for you. I was just out in California at General Assembly, saw some of these uh, good gentlemen out there, and my family and I had a wonderful time. We had a great time connecting at GA, and then afterwards we had the privilege of staying on for about a week in California, visiting friends and supporters there. And we were able to take a lifetime dream trip, the place I've always wanted to go. We were able to go to spend three days at Lake Tahoe, right on the border of California and Nevada. And it was a beautiful place. In fact, they're going to bring up a picture here for you of Lake Tahoe. See that? Gorgeous. A place I've always wanted to see. It, it, the water there is so crystal clear. You can see like 65 or 75 feet down. It's amazing. Gorgeous life, fish. Water is very cold, however. It's a beautiful, restorative place. So I, I learned something about Lake Tahoe while I was there. I learned that this lake was actually discovered for the first time by a, a white European in 1844. And the explorer's name was John C. C. Fremont. I'm pronouncing it with a French accent. I also learned about Lake Tahoe that it has over 30 lakes or streams that pour into it. But it has only one output. It has one river, the Truckee River, which flows north into Nevada from Lake Tahoe. As you can see, it's a lovely and refreshing place full of life. Now, I also learned on this trip that there's another lake that was discovered by the same explorer, by John Fremont, a year earlier in 1843. And it's the Great Salt Lake of Utah, and that picture is going to come up for you. 
Now, the Great Salt Lake actually has three major rivers that pour into it and numerous streams. But unlike Lake Tahoe, it has no output. There's no rivers flowing out of it. So can you see what a difference a little output makes? Lake Tahoe's waters are pure and they're clear, even though there's tons of input into it because it has one outflow. The Great Salt Lake has no river flowing out. It has no way for the water to flow on. So all the input of minerals from all the lakes in the creeks go to make it salty and desolate and dead. In our mean times, we need a little outflow. And my advice to you and to myself is to be faithful in the small things. We see this here in the life of Moses in Exodus 2. Moses arrives in Midian and immediately he drives away these shepherds that are harassing Royal's daughters and then he waters their flocks. And it's this seemingly small act of courage and of service that leads to this time and these blessings during this time of meantime. It leads to a wife and it leads to a son. And then what does Moses do? He tends sheep for 40 years. It's a small thing, especially in comparison with what comes after that. But he's faithful. Joseph is someone else that I mentioned before as an example. Joseph was faithful even as a servant, as a slave in Potiphar's house, even as a prisoner, as he's serving the other prisoners. Joseph is faithful in small things. Serve others. Give of yourselves. Find at least one way to pour out. And even if your output is small, it keeps your waters fresh in the meantime. And the third thing I think that we can do, and this is the title of the sermon, is to receive mercy in the meantime. Moses accepted mercy in this middle period of his life. He received the mercy of a wife, Sephora. Another tidbit for you, ladies, if you shop in the mall and buy your makeup or your perfume at Sephora, it's actually named after Moses' wife. Just thought you'd know that. So when you buy your makeup there at Sephora, you can think of God's mercy to Moses in his meantime. Moses is given a wife. He also has a son whom he names Gershom, which means I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. In this period where his identity is changing from Egyptian to something else, he names his, his son this name. Now, can you imagine as a child carrying this name around with you all of your life? I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. Imagine that. You go to school like, Gershom, yeah, where'd you get that name? Well, you know, my dad, he was having a hard time. He was kind of on the lam. Then he met my mom. It's a long story. Poor kid. He's given this name, Gershom. And I think it's interesting because I think this name indicates something about God's mercy and the way that he often deals with us in his mercy in our meantimes. Because Gershom's name seems harsh. It almost seems like Moses' bitterness as he's in this period, this difficult period in his life. But God is working here to change Moses, to prepare him, to have him feel like a foreigner as God is changing his identity. 
God is using difficult measures to prepare Moses for all that is next. And I call this a severe mercy. This is often how God shows us his mercy in these middle times, in these mean times. It's mercy, but it often feels severe. God is using difficult measures to change Moses, and he often uses difficult measures to change us. There are blessings in this period for Moses. He receives a wife. He receives a son and a new family. But everything he knew about his life, everything about the past, how he had grown up, his education in Egypt, his prestige as a son of Pharaoh's daughter, those things were past. And his identity was being challenged. Moses walks into Midian as an Egyptian prince, and he saves some girls at a well. And he walks out 40 years later as a Hebrew leader, as a shepherd. And that's an important identity change. As a man who's ready, though not without hesitation, to save God's people from slavery and to lead them, to shepherd them to the promised land. And it's all because of God's mercy, albeit severe in the meantime. As I was preparing this sermon this week, I was sitting at Starbucks here in Greenbrier, and I'm I'm working on my computer, I've got my Bible out, and a young woman came up to me, and she said, excuse me, I don't normally do this kind of thing, but can I talk with you? I'm like, uh, okay, sure, sit down. She'd seen my Bible, and she felt like she needed to talk to me. So I found out that this young woman was 20 years old, that she'd grown up in a Christian home, that her father was actually a pastor in Portsmouth, and that she was going through a very difficult period in her life. She turned away mostly from her Christian heritage. She was angry at God. She had just been diagnosed with a very critical genetic disorder that she was going to have to deal with for the rest of her life. And she wanted to basically kick God to the curb for what he had done to her. She was angry. And yet she was compelled to come and talk to me because she saw my Bible. And as she began to pour out her heart to me, a stranger, I began to hear in her words a desire, a deep desire not to let go of God. And I began to hear in my own spirit God's desire for her not to let her go and to see that God was wanting to use even this difficulty in her life to do something good and powerful. And in fact, I said, well, you're coming to me at a really good time because I'm actually working on this sermon about Moses and how God led him through this difficult period in his life. And we talked about that, and we talked about where she was. And I believe that she was able to see that God desired her, that God desired to be merciful to her, and that even that God saw her as a gift that he would give to himself. That he loved her that much. But to be honest, as we talked, she admitted, I want to believe, but I'm struggling with that. And maybe some of you here this morning are struggling with where you are. Maybe in your meantime desert places to know this love of the Father. You may not feel that love this morning. And this is why throughout Scripture... We see the saints of God crying out to him, Have mercy on us, O Lord. And this cry for mercy in the meantime 
came up for me recently in a very interesting way. Now, I was telling Steve this morning, we're homeschooling our children. And yes, for those of you who are homeschoolers, you know you can actually still be in school in the middle of July. Lord have mercy. But my, my oldest daughter is actually working on a history project. And the history project she's working on is about the history of the 1980s and 90s. So she's learning about 80s and 90s music and styles. And, you know, I'm Gen Xer. And uh, growing up as a teenager in the 1980s, of course, I feel like the music of the 1980s is, you know, the best music and better than today's music. The hairstyles, maybe not so much. But I, I wanted to introduce my daughter to the 1980s and to music. And this song came to mind. And it's probably one of my favorite songs from the 1980s. And in fact, as it came to mind, I thought, well, this actually goes along with my sermon perfectly. So I played it for my daughter and I said, honey, this is good music. Now, when I played that for my kids, I did much more dancing and air drums and I refrained from that this morning. But these words, this song, it was actually very popular. It hit number one in 1985. And most people had no idea what they were singing when they sang it. Lots of people thought he was saying, carry a laser or carry a raisin. <laughs> Neither of those things made any sense. What people were actually singing was Kyrie eleison. And they're the only Greek words in the ancient Latin mass of the church. Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy. And they were always followed by, in the Latin mass, Christe eleison, Christ. Have mercy. Have mercy, O Lord. Don't leave us alone. In our darkness, as we grow older, as we walk down our paths on our highways, in these mean times of life, have mercy on us, O Lord, because we are frail creatures of dust. The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 30, verse 18, that the Lord answers this cry, Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Wait for him in your meantime. Cry out, Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy on us. Because he desires to be gracious to us. Stay connected to him. He has not forgotten us. In the final verses of Exodus 2, I'm going to read them a third time. Moses gives a resume about this period in his life. And he says, during that long period, those 40 years, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. God was working. Moses acknowledged this in hindsight as he wrote the book of Exodus. The Lord heard the cry of his people from beginning to end, their first cry as well as their last cry in those 40 years. He heard the cry of his people who were shouting out the Hebrew equivalent of Kyrie eleison. And he was indeed preparing their deliverance. He was concerned about them. He remembered the promises that he gave to the patriarchs, and he had not been idle. He had been preparing a deliverer for them. In the meantime, 
of Midian. Brothers and sisters, the same is true of our lives. God is at work now. Even if you don't see it, even if you don't feel it, He is at work. I have seen Him at work in this difficult year of meantime. God is working. And I personally have been challenged to stay connected to the vine, to stay connected to my heart to Jesus, who is my source, to resist the temptations and the whispers of the evil one, to make sure that my life has a little outflow so that it doesn't become desolate and salty where no life can grow, and to receive mercy in my meantime, even if it's God's severe mercy. So today, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, no matter what difficulty or the dryness that you may feel, he hears your cries of Kyrie eleison, of Lord, have mercy. And he is preparing in you and around you what comes next. Never doubt it. Because God never forgets his promises. And he longs to show you, to show me, to show all of us his mercy and to use even our meantime wanderings to lead us to the next phases of life, of ministry, and of calling. Cling to him and find mercy in your meantime. So let's pray together. I want to just pray a prayer of blessing over all of us. And then I invite you, after the service is done, if you're in a meantime period, a period of dryness, or you just want prayer, there'll be people down here who will be thrilled to pray with you, me included. So let's pray together. Holy God, I thank you that you are a God who never forgets your promises. You are a God that is always working. You've shown us that in the life of Moses. You've shown us that in the life of your son and the life of all the saints. We know and we proclaim today that you are good. And I pray, God, for those who are struggling today in a dry meantime in their lives, that you would work. You would show mercy, even if it's severe, to bring about what you have so that there would be life there would be refreshment, there would be restoration, and your kingdom would grow. God, we thank you that you're that kind of God that takes all the periods of our life and they use them for our good and for your glory. And we pray for your glory now to fill us and to fill this place as we go. In the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.